Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Historical Society of Palm Beach County Museum in the 1916 Courthouse. Our research facility, which is incredibly active, sees architects, uh, researchers, academics come to this, this facility quite frequently to, to peruse our extensive collection. Otter pelts were a popular luxury item in the 1950s. We'll remember collecting those pelts in Florida. We set the little baby in the airboat and go out and run our trap line. Otters was plentiful at that time. The golden age of Florida railroads in the early 20th century. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Hi there. Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? Good. Where are you from? Cam Joshua. All right, cool. Well, thanks for coming out. Are you enjoying yourselves? Yes. Wow. What do you think about your Palm Beach County History Museum? Is it pretty awesome. cool? It's awesome. All right. Love it. Good, good, good. Well, we're delighted to have you all here. President all and CEO Jeremy Johnson family? greets yeah. a group wonderful, of students touring the Historical Society of Palm Beach County Museum. The museum, the headquarters of the Historical Society of Palm Beach County, and their archive are all located in a beautifully restored 1916 courthouse. In 1914, Henry Flagler donated the land where the 1916 Palm Beach County Courthouse was constructed. Jeremy Johnson explains the evolution of this building and the property around it. The property was originally donated by Mr. Flagler, and um, as the county developed uh, as a result of splitting away from Miami-Dade County, the citizens looked for a place for the county to conduct its, its main operations, at which point um, initially there was a schoolhouse that um, the county operated under for um, the first couple years of its existence. And then um, very quickly uh, they realized they were running out of space and determined that they needed a, a more permanent structure and a building. And at that point um, they commissioned an architect and off sprung the building. Um, the building initially, uh, the first structure was built and then uh, several years after that they made a, a mirror image building behind this courthouse that still remains today. Um, I believe it was in the 1969 or 1970, the county in its infinite wisdom decided to wrap the building around with a structure that um, many people at the time and, and going forward just were completely appalled by. It was sort of an ugly brick structure and it just didn't fit the neoclassical uh, structure that originally was here. Um, and then of course, um, due to a bond referendum and I believe 2001, um, funds were allotted by the county to um, uncover the building, and um, there, therein lies the, the beautiful gem that we sit in now, which is the restored 1916 Palm Beach County Courthouse. Restoration of the 1916 Courthouse and its transformation into the headquarters of the Historical Society of Palm Beach County required the demolition of both the 1969 wraparound and the 1927 edition. 
Fortunately, significant portions of the 1927 building were saved, which helped with the restoration of the 1916 courthouse. It was an amazing process. In fact, when we get an opportunity to to walk through the museum, we'll show you some photographs of of literally the processes as it took place. And what was particularly interesting about the Um, the the uncovering of this building is the, it, there was some wisdom that took place in terms of the wraparound in some of the uh, columns and artifacts that adorned the outside of the exterior of the building, and actually when the wraparound was complete, um, the columns that you see on, on the front of the building and to the sides of the building were actually housed at、uh, a local cemetery. The Historical Society of Palm Beach County was established in 1937. The archival collection the society has assembled since that time is housed in the restored 1916 courthouse. Well, we are, are very fortunate to have an incredibly extensive archival collection, and, and、um, as I show you around, you'll notice that we are, as a lot of historical entities, running out of room almost on a daily basis. We continue to accession. Um, artifacts and and obviously that's a, a major role in what this organization plays in the county is to be the keeper and the repository of these artifacts and and of course make them accessible to the public. We have an amazing、um, array of artifacts, both from a one-dimensional standpoint, meaning letters, photographs, architectural drawings,、uh, and quite honestly, a, a relatively extensive three-dimensional artifact collection as well. Things from、uh, you know anything from Meisner industry-related product. Projects to、um, you know things, fashion and artifacts from the breakers and、uh, all over the county. Essentially,、um, it, it's a wonderfully extensive collection, and we endeavor on a regular basis to to make those these collections accessible. In fact, our research facility, which is incredibly active, sees architects,、uh, researchers, academics come to this this facility quite frequently to to peruse. Our extensive collection. The Historical Society of Palm Beach County moved into the restored 1916 courthouse in December 2007, and in March 2008 they opened the Richard and Pat Johnson Palm Beach County Historical Museum. Jeremy Johnson walks us through the People Gallery. Ben, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Richard and Pat Johnson Palm Beach County History Museum, and we are currently strolling through our. Uh, People's Gallery. The permanent exhibitions here at the museum are divided into、uh, a People's Gallery, which obviously highlights and and、uh, remembers some of the significant people in the development of Palm Beach County. And then we have a Places Gallery, which we'll visit next, which、um, obviously speaks to the significant places in Palm Beach County through the through the years. As we stroll through the、um, the, the People's Gallery, one of the first Places that we'll stop is at the earliest people,、um, as you know, here in Florida and particularly in South Florida, the Seminoles and the Yaga were two of the early tribes that inhabited、um, the area that's now known as Palm Beach County, and、um, you know it was a tumultuous relationship. Unfortunately, the the many of the tribes, the original tribes, were decimated、um, by the Europeans, both via slavery, disease,、um, and those types of things. So it was、uh, a difficult time for. Um, there are cultures to to align and to to finally become one. As we move through the the people gallery, we'll move towards an area that is of particular importance, and that is our notables gallery. Ben, and、um, as you might imagine, there are significant people、um, that have、um, 
been a part of our county and made significant impacts on our county. And you'll find many of them uh, located in our Notables Gallery. And we have a, a gallery that's um, divided essentially into thematics in terms of business, industry, healthcare. And one of the things that we'll do going forward is we continue to grow our Notables Gallery. And um, as, as we do have an excellent representation, we certainly have many, many more people who are deserving to be in the Notables Gallery. And we'll work to, uh, to bring those people into the fold. From the People Gallery, we walk into the Places Gallery of the Palm Beach County Historical Museum. Well, Ben, this, this area of the museum really captures um, the essence of the various places that are significant in Palm Beach County. As you might imagine, in a county that spans from the Atlantic Ocean to on the eastern side to Lake Okeechobee on the western side, the environment um, obviously plays a prominent role in our county. Um, first of all, obviously the beaches and the beautiful attractions that really made the county what it is today. But again, um, you, we would be omitting a very important aspect of this county's development, which is agriculture, if we did not spend time and focus on all the wonderful things that take place in the western part of our county. And it really is, um, when you talk about the, the business of Palm Beach County, you, you cannot speak um, without mentioning the significance of the agricultural community and, and the development of our county from an agricultural perspective. So in this Places Gallery, we really uh, attempt to illuminate some of the areas that are significant, the shoals, the marshlands, the environmental areas that have, have become to make what Palm Beach County is what it is today. In addition to highlighting the agriculture and natural attributes of Palm Beach County, the Places Gallery also explores the area's unique architecture. Jeremy Johnson. The development of, of Palm Beach County certainly would not have been what it is without the, the Gilded Age and obviously Mr. Flagler and his contributions to Florida in general. Um, one, of his, uh, one of the architects that has really played a prominent role in the development of, of the style, if you will, of Palm Beach was Addison Meisner. So we're very fortunate to have um, a very robust collection of, of Meisner artifacts. Um, we have here on display some of the artifacts from both his apartment and some of his architectural um, landmarks on the island. So we're just delighted to have this collection. As we walk over here, what's very interesting too is one of the things that we try to convey through this place's gallery is to really ar articulate the development of the county from the early times and, for example, some of the early towns and, and how the towns originated. Um, Kelsey City, for example, which is now Lake Park, was sort of a deemed a utopian type of environment that never really caught on to its fullest extent, but the remnants of it um, are now what is known as Lake Park. And so as you look at the map that we're looking at right now, you can see an area of Palm Beach County, and, and the aerial photograph shows a, a, a vast sort of uh, not wasteland, but just undeveloped area. And this area right now is uh, Palm Beach Lakes and I-95, which is an incredibly developed area now. When Palm Beach County was established in 1885, a U.S. mail route was created that went north to Lake Worth and south to the Miami area. The mail carriers on this route were called the Barefoot Mailmen because with no roads heading south, the mailmen walked along the beach for about 40 miles and rode boats for about 28 miles to deliver the mail. The nickname, The Barefoot Mailman, came from a 1943 novel by Theodore Pratt and the 1951 film version of the book. The legend of The Barefoot Mailman is preserved in the Palm Beach County Historical Museum. You cannot talk about the history of Palm Beach County without mentioning all of the efforts that The Barefoot Mailman did. And here we have um, one of the re uh, replicas of a Barefoot Mailman, and as you know, uh, the walk from how mail was delivered essentially from the Juno. Um, lighthouse down to uh, Miami and, and the Biscayne area was at that time via the beaches, thus the name Barefoot Mailman. So um, we uh, were very proud of 
that legacy and, and what they've uh, initially how the, the mail was delivered in the south end of the state. The Historical Society of Palm Beach County Museum is on the second floor of the 1916 courthouse. Their archive is on the floor below and on the floor above is a preserved courtroom. Jeremy Johnson. Well, this is, in fact, the uh, original courtroom from the original courthouse in 1916. It's been restored to exactly the way it looked in 1916. Um, as you may hear from the echoing uh, from the acoustics, uh, the acoustics were always a challenge in this room, and they continue to be a challenge for us. In fact, one of our, our capital ideas is to uh, raise some money to, to really remedy the acoustics, to make this room a bit more meaningful. When this room was initially utilized, obviously, it was before there was air conditioning. So a lot of the time that this uh, room would have been utilized, the windows would have all been opened, which would have allowed the, the passage of air and also the, the exiting of some of the reverberation of the sound. This room currently is used in a, in a variety of functions. Um, we do a lot of um, receptions in the room. When we open an exhibition, we will generally hold a reception here. We also um, hold mock trials here. We have um, students from the Palm Beach County School District come here. There are mock trials that are done. So one of the things that I will do, Ben, as, as the, the CEO of the Historical Society, is to really make the most out of this beautiful space. Not only is this space uh, a wonderful space for the Historical Society, but it's also a wonderful space for the community as well. At the back of the restored courtroom and on the fourth floor balcony above, the Palm Beach County Bar Association has assembled an exhibition called And Justice for All that looks at government and law. One of the things that we are, are most proud of, of our relationship with the citizens of the county, Ben, is that we bring in um, almost all of the fourth grade classes from the Palm Beach County School District. And as you know, one of the best ways that you can engage young people in community and get them involved in good citizenship is to teach them and expose them about how they can become better citizens, i.e. learning about how government works and how the law works. So we are so very grateful to the, the members and the, the supporters of the Palm Beach County Bar Association for an absolutely wonderful exhibition on government and the law. Jeremy Johnson is president and CEO of the Historical Society of Palm Beach County. The Society headquarters, archive, and museum are in a beautifully restored 1916 courthouse. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our newsletter, The Society Report, and our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. 
1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Dana St. Clair, Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the city of St. Augustine. St. Augustine's nearly four and a half centuries of history has layered up in the ground so richly that archaeologists and scientists can tap into just about any period of American history. We claim as our own some of the greatest 16th century archaeology in the United States. There are very few cities in the continental United States that can claim 16th century archaeology. As an example, archaeologists in St. Augustine have unearthed a church from the 16th century on Avalay Street, one of the original wooden forts on Castillo Drive, and many structures, including barrel wells, throughout the city. We know where the original locations of our first streets are. We know where the original plaza was laid out. We know all of this because of the archaeological research that has been done here for nearly a half a century. Dana St. Clair is Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the City of St. Augustine. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. In the mid-20th century, otter pelts were a popular luxury item and the animals were plentiful in Florida. Janie Gould tells us that Edna McPherson and her husband bought a stove and refrigerator with money they made from selling otter pelts. Otters used to be a valuable source of income for an Indian River County family. Edna McPherson and her husband cleared land to build their home just off Road 60, across from where the mall is now. That was more than 60 years ago, when much of the area was marsh. My husband, Charles Price, would go out in the marsh and set his traps. Then the next evening he'd come home from work and then we'd go out and run those traps. And I had a baby. We'd set the little baby in the airboat and go out and run our trap line. Otters was plentiful at that time. We'd bring them home and we'd skin them out before we'd ever go to bed at night. How did you sell the pelts? We packed them in dry ice and took them to the railway station. We fixed them and packed them for shipment to New York. They paid $25 a piece for the pelts. We bought our first refrigerator and stove for our house with that money. We were up all times of the night skinning those pelts out, scraping them, getting them clean, nice and clean, rolled up and packed for shipment. Then the next night we'd do the same thing, and that started all over again. How many otters would you typically bring in from the traps? Well, anywhere from 5 to 10 or 15, maybe. That's a lot of otters to skin. That's a lot of otters to skin, but my husband was a strong, husky man. Charles Price, he believed in working hard and paying for our house and uh, having a good home for our family. What were the pelts used for? For coats for rich people and collars for ladies, hats and warm clothes for people up north. Only rich people could afford to have them. Did you also use the meat from the otter? Sometimes we did, but we found out that a lot of people wasn't eating the meat, and I don't know why that was. But we ate the meat for a while, and it's just as good as the alligator tail was that we trapped. How did you prepare the meat for your family? Well, I rolled mine like chicken, you know, in flour, and dipped it in hot fat. It was real good. 
10 or 15 otters a night. They only allowed you a permit for just so many. And if you caught your quota, well, then that was it for the night. They were plentiful, but then they made a law that we couldn't trap them anymore. So we didn't do it anymore after that. Did you ever have an otter coat or anything like that, a collar for a sweater for yourself? No, we didn't because they had to be treated in some certain way to make beautiful coats for women. You lived in the same house for 60 years. It was on Road 60, across from where um, the mall area is now. You and your husband cleared the land. We had a lot of shovels and a lot of hoes and a lot of rakes. We had to go down in the canal, park our car on the road, go down on the side of the ditch and come up the other side and carry our tools across. Finally, my husband put a boardwalk across there. Hallelujah. We were glad for that. The house is still there, right? The house is still there. Yes, it is. Did you ever think that the town of Vero would essentially come out to meet you where you live there? No, I never did. I never thought that State Road 60 would be like it is now. The family didn't have electricity at first, but eventually they made enough money selling otter pelts to pay for the city to extend a power line to their home. We could pay the city $300 to get electricity in our house. And I had a built-in oven. I felt like a queen with all those appliances, which I didn't have when I was a child. The otters made it possible. Edna McPherson grew up not far from State Road 60. Her parents' home was on what is now called 66th Avenue, a busy road that runs just west of the mall. It used to be known as Lateral A, and folks called Mrs. McPherson Edna May from Lateral A. Even my boyfriends in high school teased me about being Edna May from Lateral A. Edna McPherson, 84, still lives in Vero Beach. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Railroads were established in Florida in the late 1800s by entrepreneurs such as Henry Flagler and Henry Plant, and the early 20th century brought the golden age of Florida railroads. Bill Dudley has more. It was quite an experience to have one of those locomotives go past you with the whistle screaming and the smell of the coal smoke and, and the oil and the exhaust sound. It was really quite a visual and oral experience and I've never forgotten it. That's historian Greg Turner. His book, A Journey into Florida Railroad History, looks at the evolution of rail transportation in the Sunshine State. 
It began in the late 1830s with a train that carried cotton from Tallahassee to St. Mark's on the Gulf. They couldn't even afford a steam locomotive, and they had to use the power of mules and horses to pull the trains. So it was almost comical in appearance. But in the next few years, small railroads began appearing all around North Florida, hauling produce, lumber, and sometimes passengers who rode on open flat cars fitted with seats. Early trains ran on iron-topped wooden rails from three to five feet apart. They were dangerous and expensive to build, and most were unsuccessful, until Florida legislators realized how railroads could help the state grow. In 1855, the famous Internal Improvement Act literally made the prospect of building a railroad very profitable because for every mile of railroad, the state of Florida would give that concern 3,650 free acres of land, and they would guarantee the interest on those railroad bonds that the company issued. These tax-free grants of state land inspired entrepreneurs like David Levy Uley, one of our state's first U.S. senators. He built a line from Fernandina, north of Jacksonville, to Cedar Key on the Gulf in the 1850s. Still, it wasn't until the 1880s the tracks began to crisscross the state. A few large railroads and scores of small ones, like the St. Cloud and Sugar Belt Railroad, 15 miles of track connecting Kissimmee and Narcusi near present-day Orlando. The St. John's and Halifax Railroad, the Silver Springs, Ocala, and Gulf, and I love this one, the Fort Meade, Keystone, and Walk in the Water Railroad. This was a big state, and we had to get railroads built to move people and goods. No town wanted to be left off the map because they knew its economic fate lay in the balance. Miami Railroad historian and author Seth Bramson says the industry was spurred on by the efforts of aggressive and visionary business types, among them the three Henrys, Plant, Sanford, and Flagler. We have a still a major frontier state here, and even though the frontier, which of course was in the West, had been declared closed, Florida was a wilderness. It would take Flagler and Plant to bring the beginnings of modern Florida to pass. By the 1920s, most of the state's railroads had been consolidated into a few big companies, the Seaboard Airline, the Florida East Coast Railway, and the Atlantic Coastline. Rail travel was safe, fast, and luxurious. Trains that could run from New York to Miami in 32 hours helped usher in the mid-20s Florida boom. Seaboard reached Miami in 1925. They started out with three passenger trains each day, each way, from the north to Miami. The Florida East Coast Railway that same season was operating 12 trains a day between Jacksonville and Miami, and that was just the first section. To keep up with the demand, the companies began expanding their freight and passenger service. In 1928, the railway map of Florida stood at its greatest extent some 6,000 miles whereas today we have about 2,700. This was the golden era of Florida railroads when folks came from all parts of the country on trains like the Orange Blossom Special, trains with names that are still remembered today. The Miamian, the Oversea Limited, one of the trains that went to Key West. There was the Biscayne Limited. Later on, there would be trains such as the Vacationer, the Florida Arrow, and coming out of Chicago, you had the Dixie Flyer, the Dixie Limited. At the height of the Depression, one New York to Miami train even carried a swimming pool. 
Except for a brief boost during World War II, Florida's railroads have declined over the last 75 years. With competition from interstates and big trucks, companies have merged and names have changed. Passenger service was taken over by Amtrak in 1971. But fuel shortages and rising infrastructure costs may yet herald a return to some form of rail transportation. For historians and aficionados like Bramson and Turner, nothing will ever take the place of the train. A Journey into Florida Railroad History is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.